This is Power Athlete Radio. With your hosts, Denny Kaye, Professor Booty, and the Luke Summers. And now, toes forward, hips locked, shoulders set, and retract those scapulas. It's time for some knowledge bombs. Episode 49, one away from 50. We got a great show for you. I've been excited about this one. Luke Summers is with me. What's going on? Tex is with me. And we got a special guest on the line. Howdy. But first, before we get to him, Luke and Tex, how you guys doing? Not too bad. It's raining in Southern California. It's one of the, you know, this place is unbelievable. I can't stand the weather. Better than snow, right? Yeah, you guys got snow. Yeah, hot and humid in Tampa. It's hot as usual in Tampa. I kind of felt like a pussy this weekend. That's right. And humid. I'm going to kind of put that out there. (laughs) Why? What happened? We're at the Naperville CrossFit football cert, and part of the seminar is running. You're going to have to go outside. Midwest, it was like, what, Luke, in the 30s? Maybe upper 20s, little bit of snow flurries. Luke's out there in a t-shirt. We're all wearing shorts and a t-shirt, right? Um, There's like 25 attendees. They're all lined up. They're listening to Luke hollering at them. Luke's in a t-shirt and shorts, as am I. But I had to go back in and get my sweatshirt, right? Yeah. Luke's been in California for three years. (laughs) I'm still here, and he hasn't missed a beat. He, he's not even shivering. My knees are knocking. The arm, my arm hairs are standing up. I had to go inside and get my sweatshirt on. It was, uh, you know, it's, it was nice to have that that crisp air just uh, rolling over my skin. You know, it was, it was a nice reminder of what home is like. At least some of the other guys went in and got sweatshirts too. Yeah, so it was, dude. It <laughs> Well, I came in there, and uh, it wasn't too bad. I don't know. I mean, the, the cold never really bothered me. But what's funny, Tex, so we're out there doing, uh, uh, you know, straight-ahead speed, and I go in to uh, for a back squat deadlift lecture. And I realize that I've lost absolutely all, like, uh, dexterity in my hands because they're, they're numb, you know? I just wasn't really paying attention. So I'm trying to, like, write on the whiteboard. I'm like, Carl, you need – you need to stall for me, man. I need some blood flow through my hands. But uh, so needless well, to say, there's, there's very little on the whiteboard for back squat deadlift because I just couldn't couldn't write. But at least you avoided the lecture sweat from the straight head speed. Oh God, how yeah, for sure. That's one of the you know one of the hardships of being in a uh, part of seminar staff where you not only demo the practical but also give the lecture is like you come in just what drenched in sweat. And if we wear black shirts, so if you're one of those real sweaty people who sweats a lot of salt, uh, then you have like these weird sweat lines under your boobs, uh, which are man boobs. And it's just, it's awkward for everybody, you know, but that's what Tex is talking about with that lecture sweat. So what else, Denny? I mean, what else do you think of that this weekend? All right. Well, 
we got a special guest for you. We can't. We got to get this guy talking like ASAP. Was was he blowing your mind before the show? Incredible. <laughs> the physio detective, right? Anthony Lowe, how you doing? Well, thank you. It's uh quarter. It's twenty past four in the morning here. I'm I'm a little bit tired, but I'm excited. <laughs> well, we appreciate you getting up early to join us on the Power Athlete broadcast. <clears throat> it's an honor to be on here. You know, over the weekend, Luke kind of uh, filled me in on some of your background, told me a few stories. Um, would you mind just kind of uh, introducing yourself and maybe talk a little bit about how you hooked up with the Power Athlete coaches? Sure. So I've been a physio for, uh, for a while now. Um, I guess I started studying 21 years ago. And um, everything that I do in physio... Uh, applies to I try to apply it to everything I try to capture everybody and um, so I ended up in CrossFit uh, because I was a fat slob I'm still I'm still too fat but I am stronger um, and uh, how I hooked up with the power athlete coaches was uh, via a CrossFit uh, football seminar held at um, held at my gym and um, just helping out Ben and Luke with a with a few things just quietly and um, and the conversation started from there and I was I was uh, very generously uh, hosted by them uh, for last year's CrossFit Games at their stall and um, just caught up with them down at CrossFit Balboa which was um, great to spend a week down there watching them work and um, how they work and having good discussions and and that week actually helped me uh, solve a few problems. It gave me the space to think about some more things, and um, and I was able to pick their brains, and um, hopefully I contributed in some way to them as well. Yeah, it was a, it was great to have Ant out, you know, and uh, you know Ant's being pretty modest. He's a super sharp dude, and uh, you know one thing that that's shown through when we've we had the chance to pick Ant's brain both down under and when he was stateside is, you know, I think you, you described the ant as, you know, looking at uh, an issue as like a complete system and understanding that there's multiple components going on uh, both up and downstream and taking that approach to, uh, you know, anecdotally uh, Murray Daniel talked on, uh, on comments on Calais blog about like his knee was bothering him. And uh, you were able to kind of just visualize and find out that hey, it could be a rib issue or something up in the thorax. So talk a little bit about how like how you that whole holistic view that you take versus some other disciplines or some other physios within the within that discipline. Sure. So for example, um, one of the ways that that um. Well, the, the only way that I can help figure out what's going on with somebody is actually to watch them move. So a video of them playing or, or actually get my uh, anyone who visits me as a patient, I get them to squat, I get them to do their problem movements. Um, and then what I'm looking for is, is what you guys would call force bleed. I call it torque bleed. I, it doesn't matter what it's called. But I'm looking for the very first thing that is doing something not quite right. And that, that could actually be the very start, just the very way that you stand before you start moving. So um, I'm really interested in your starting position, and then I'm really interested in, um, in how you get from A to B. 
everything in between. Um, and for example, um, if I was looking at somebody's uh, knee that was sore, like you mentioned, Murray, um, I want to see him move. And you know, he mentioned the ribs. So um, the way that I did that was I, I can see the body move. I can see the body shift. So you see a subtle slight shift, and the earlier that you see it, um, the more significant it is to me. And then I correct that, and then I see if anything else goes goes on. And the thing that you the thing that you try to help the most, that fixes the most, is the most important thing. Um, does that sort of make sense? Yeah, for sure. And I mean, uh, would you say that almost all the majority of local issues, like, hey, my knee, my ankle, my hip, my shoulder, is caused by something upstream or downstream? Yeah, it's difficult to say because there are local things that go on. I think a lot of um, a lot of the time, though, the, the limbs themselves tend to, to bear the brunt of um, a poorly controlled trunk. I think that's a, that's a generalization that I'm happy to stand behind. But I always sure. check the local issues as well. Mm -hmm. And then, do you find, but in the majority of the cases, it's not necessary. Let's say for a CrossFitter, uh, yep. it's not it's not necessary. Or uh, somebody who's training, uh, either like a. I mean, how would you, Tex? How would you describe someone who's training just kind of to train versus someone who, had, you know, like an athlete? How can we generalize uh, it? Exercise. Exerciser. Okay. <laughs> For an exerciser, whether it be competitive or uh, an enthusiast, mm -hmm. do you think uh, have you, in your experience, noticed a, a higher uh, rate of it being local or something upstream or downstream? Yeah. So the difficulty in answering that question for me is that often you present to me with a local symptom. You sprained your ankle, your knees sore your shoulder sore, you've got tennis elbow that you can't shake. Um, and so so I have to still deal with whatever injury, like you've got a torn ligament, oh, I, I still have to help that ligament heal. But at the same time, I'm always looking, well, why did that ankle go and not the other one? Why did mm -hmm. you put so much more force on this side than the other side? Um, and nice. and so that's what, that's what I'm looking at all the time is why, why, why? Yeah. Yeah, that uh, that that big picture approach. I think what separates you from, I guess, a lot of the athletic trainers and physical therapists that I've had in my athletic career, uh, they're just looking to just put some ice on it, or only looking at the ankle, and not not what other problems it could cause. That's definitely a common thing that that we see around here. And and to be fair to those who work with teams quite often they're not paid very well and they don't have much time with the athletes. And so a lot of the focus is just getting them back on the field as opposed to, look, let's take the time, let's solve this in the preseason um, and, and make them strong for it. Um, what they're doing is they're just patching people up to send them back out again. Um, yeah, it's kind of that triage approach, right? Absolutely. And, and to be honest, I, I, I try not to work with too many sports teams for that reason because the pressure, like when I work with somebody at the CrossFit Games, my focus is not to solve their problem, uh, their long-term problem, because I can't do that 
in the 15, 20 minutes that we have before they go on, um, my whole focus is to get them through that workout. I know what the movements are and I know what their body can do and then I have to patch them in such a way that um, is going to maximize their output with whatever uh, injury or system problem they've got going on. Reminds me of uh, like just watching a war movie, you know, like rub some dirt in it and get them back out there. <laughs> you know? It feels like that. It feels dirty, <laughs> I tell you. But uh, that's, that's, I guess, the trade-off. You know, when we talk about um, – it typically pops up in our nutrition lecture, but the, the idea that performance and longevity are juxtaposed oftentimes because, you, I mean, you, you work, you know, or inverse relationship because you work with a, a guy who has to get out there who's a, you know, his livelihood relies on his performance and he doesn't have the, the resources, whether it's time, energy, whatever – to, to fully heal, then you got to work with what you got, right? You know, and that's uh, it's kind of a hard give and take uh, because most people, when they look at exercise and nutrition and and weight training and things like that, they confuse the objective or oftentimes as uh, an attempt to live longer and a healthier life, you know. But that's not always the case. So, what do you think? What do you think of the Open this year, Ant? Um, I, I think it's been great, to be honest. Um, the deadlift workout um, was the scariest one for me from a health professional point of view. But having the jumps as 20 kilo increments really let people hit a wall. And once you hit that wall, it was really hard to do too many reps. Unless you're <laughs> really stupid, it was hard to do too many reps um, once yeah, you hit that yeah. wall. So I think that was I think that was okay. I think that was good. But the last one, 14.4, I think was just uh, almost genius in terms of it really was able to separate people out. I think it achieved the objectives that Dave Castro wanted. And um, yeah. to watch to watch good athletes um, do it, it was really um, it was fun to watch. And also to even see people like. You know, I beat some people who are stronger than me, faster than me, and have more cardio than me. So I think from a mental point of view, it really hit people too. Yeah. It was good. I liked it. Hey, Tex, did, I, did you ever – what did you – did you do that workout? Uh, no. Uh, real life got in the way. So my birthday's this week, and my dad surprised me and came down to Tampa. I had a nice schedule going with Paula. Uh, we're Friday nights, so just go down, hang out at CrossFit Jaguar, knock out the workout, but then my dad kind of screwed that up. So then uh, come Monday, so my plan was just do it Monday before our 5 p.m. deadline. Mm -hmm. Again, real life got in the way. So I think we're uh, – I've won two, you've won two. I think we're even, and uh, it comes down to the fifth one. What do you mean? No, no, no. no. Listen, this was the all or nothing one. Don't you remember? No, no, no. <laughs> so we're not going by who finishes what. It's just winner take all for these workouts, and it just came down. You got two, I got two, and now we got one more. All right, let's do it. What do you want to bet on it? Well, muscle ups already out of the equation, so I'm feeling pretty good. Well, it's got uh, what, are, uh, what did uh, this weekend, Denny? What did um, we had a, a guy, Tommy Moon, I used to train with, and he uh, like he he pays attention to every little detail, but he. 
like out of all he've he's cataloged like all the movements out of all the previous open and there's only two movements left that we haven't seen. What was it? Thrusters and burpees. Yeah, that's it, right? Thrusters and burpees. Yeah, that's it. Yep. So what do you got, Tex? Are you thruster? Are you thruster and burpee guy? Can you even go fast on your burpees? Oh yeah, as long as yeah, I'm freaking five seven. If they don't give me like a set target, if it's only six inches above me, I'm a monster. Six inches? <laughs> that's your max vertical. Exactly. <laughs> But I can replicate my max vertical over and over. That's what makes me such a good athlete, you know, is my replication of speed, not necessarily my work capacity or lack thereof. Yeah, you've been you've been hanging with Ruiz, haven't you? Uh, a little too much. All right, let's get back on track. Uh, what else? Uh, what else do we want to talk about with Ann? What about uh? Did we did we start the conversation with force bleed yet? Have we discussed uh, not... that? <clears throat> Yeah, we can. Uh, so uh, just talking about kind of uh, positions. So I know you're working with a lot of uh, CrossFitters now, and efficiency of movement and decreasing force bleed is almost everything in that sport. So even taking that deadlift box jump workout, for example, I'm sure if we watch the videos of all the top 10 guys, Playtech included, that their posture was perfect and they would did not round their backs at one. So how important is that kind of loss of torque and force bleed uh, for power, strength, speed, and efficiency of movement? Okay. So because you said power, strength, speed, and efficiency of movement, um, force bleed is important for that. Um, I think it's important that you, to, to maximize your performance and to minimize your fatigue, um, I, uh, you've got to maximize um, your efficiency. Um, so, from from the health professional point of view, though, which um, has to take into account the other half and also the negative consequences, I'm always asking the question: How much can you push your tissues until they go to failure? So, um, I I always have that side of the coin to deal with as well. And answer your question. Yeah. So, in um, how about with uh, your field sport or kind of sport sport athletes? Do you see a lot of guys that uh, they walk walk duck footed, pigeon toed, knock kneed, bow legged? Do you feel that that has any impact on uh, their performance or lack of performance limiting factors with the force bleed? Yeah. Look. I think um, I think it does uh, to some degree. I've seen um, I've seen some guys though. They have the flattest of the flat feet. It's like they're they're walking on Malibu surfboards, and um, but they are the fastest. This guy that I'm thinking of is a fullback for one of the teams down here a decade or so ago, and he was able to turn on a dime. He was able to cut, but he had the worst feet. Um, you know, just really flat. I remember talking to his podiatrist about how we just couldn't believe how under under load, under speed, he was able to control all of his joints. But then you put him on a treadmill to watch him walk, and it just looked terrible, terrible. So um, it really highlighted to me how um, how you are outside of your sport is. Um, gives you an idea of where to look for some of the potential problems that might crop up. Um, 
but also um, how you are during your sport. He just lined everything up and controlled everything that he needed to to output um, a fantastic performance. Um, but certainly, if you for him, he's going to illustrate for me um, what I call the, the the dog and poodle argument, and that is um, poodles are always dogs, but dogs are not always poodles. So just because um, if you if you've got say externally rotated feet when you walk around, if you can get into a squat or you can get into a position where your feet are straight ahead, um, that's good. It's going to let you do externally rotated relatively well as well. But not everybody who's externally rotated can get into that straight position. So it's all about the assessment. That's really important to me. So just because you can do, sorry, so if you can do the ideal, then you can do the suboptimal and come back into the ideal. But just because you do the suboptimal doesn't mean you can do the ideal. And that's what I'm always looking for in dynamic movement as closely related to this sport as possible. So, and do you think if, there, if you were to correct some of the, if you could correct some of the issues out of that, uh, let's say that fullback you were talking about that he would yield uh, or reap a performance benefit? Um, on top of what he could already accomplish on the field? Quite possibly. Quite possibly. Mm -hmm. He was able to control his foot to such a degree that it didn't provide a problem. Um, it allowed him to move better. Um, I'd have to examine him. I, he wasn't my sure. patient. I'd have to examine him to see if I could uh, improve his performance. But, um, but yeah, I see. Like I saw a current first grader. Um, so that's like our top flight uh, in, in the NRL, in the rugby league professional game. And this guy was super strong. Um, and, you know, I'm just thinking back. He, he had a lot of good things. His problem was uh, a cardio type problem. So I screened his body for, um, for all sorts of force bleeds and, um, and looking to maximize his efficiency. He was pretty efficient. Um, the only thing that I couldn't do was I couldn't exhaust him to see how he performed under fatigue. So this guy's a front row forward. That means that he's in there tackling a lot and he's yeah. running the ball into a wall of guys my size, you know, um, 110, 115 kilos and, um, and just getting knocked to the ground a lot. So um, just how he performs under fatigue was the only thing that I couldn't assess. You know, and I was reading uh, I was reading an article that's kind of circulating out there, and it was talking about how the way that at the top of the femur, that ball, you know, the, the, the way the femur attaches into the pelvis, the ball and socket joint, like that ball on some people's femurs are like at a perfect 90 degrees from the top of the femur, and that other people it's more like 45 and uh -huh. the difference in those degrees, according to this article, and I can kind of post the link to you guys. It said that that difference is going to dictate if people are able to squat below parallel or not. Yep. Totally. And Anatomy is big. How, I guess my question would be, cause this article really didn't answer it, but say somebody new comes in and 
I can see them, you know, trying to squat and they're just tight all over. They're not able to get below parallel. You know, is there anything else, any other signal or, or marker that I can look for that's going to tell me if this individual happens to have that, you know, that high uh, ball and socket that's going to um, hinder them from getting low? Or is there really no way to determine that? And you're just going to have to keep putting them in different positions to determine that. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Um, what you're looking for is the, um, the test that you can do on the gym floor real quick um, to see whether or not that's going to be a problem in the future. Um, there are screening tests that you can use for antiversion and retroversion. So it's not just the angle at which it goes into the socket. It's also the twist that your femur has um, and the angle at which the, the ball points at the pelvis. Um, it also depends on how far forward your socket faces versus how far out. So you know how there's some guys that look good in a squat and their feet are just underneath their hips and they look fine and as soon as you want to take them to shoulder width or wider, they look like they can't cope, their knees collapse in. That's probably almost certainly an anatomy issue. Um, you've also got people who, um, who have a tibial torsion. So for instance, I won't ever squat straight ahead efficiently with my feet um, because I have a twist in my tibia. So these are all things that can be taught to you. Um, the, the easiest one is an antiversion, retroversion test is where they lie on their tummy with their knee bent to 90 degrees and you have to feel for the outside bone of the hip and then you measure the angle at which their leg is off to the side. I can't remember what the test is. It's, um, it's still before five o'clock in the morning, but um, I can look it up and send you the link if you like. I've read yeah. that article that you're talking about though. Yeah, and let's uh, maybe we can connect afterwards, and I'll get it up in the show notes for everybody to check out. Beautiful. All right. Well, we got a submission that was sent to us. Um, you guys want to touch base with that from sure. Sean Egan? I, I had one more one more question. If we can hold off. Sure. Um, just based off one of my experiences uh, when I was. Just uh, working with the college football team, we had the fastest guy on the team. He extremely tight calves. He walked, he walked duck-footed, and uh, we did monster walks one day, resisted monster walks. And uh, every time this guy was up, I'd just kind of walk with him, and he could not get to kind of internally rotated toes forward. So I approached the strength and conditioning coach after the session, and I asked him, Coach, are we supposed to – aren't we supposed to teach like toes forward athletic position? And his response was yes, but he's the fastest guy in the team. And my question was, could he be faster? And this coach's response was he's the fastest guy in the team. So with uh, kind of, I know Luke kind of pointed at it with the flat foot fullback and with this athlete, can can we get them to be in a good position? So I know when they play in sport, they may control their body with this flat foot or duck footed position, but won't their athletic career be at risk if they continue to do that, even though they have control now? You think that control is long-term or sustainable? Sure. So when I said control, 
I meant that he could get his foot into a straight position and oh, an ideal okay. position. So it's not just control a bad position, it's actually under load he got into a good position. That's okay. what I was trying to get at with that dog and poodle thing. He could do the ideal, it's just that he's, he lives because it takes less energy. He just lives in a, in a suboptimal position. Um, and so, um, so for your example, can that guy get better? If he can't achieve ideal um, in a dynamic situation, like the monster walks or even running, if you film him and he's got biomechanical issues, there's no guarantee that it will, it will improve his performance. But I've seen a lot of people improve their performance when I fix them. So um, I'm still always going to have a go. I always okay. test. I always assess. I always have a go. <laughs> yeah, just in my experience, a coach looks at that best performer or the best, the strongest, the fastest on the team. And then that becomes the norm. So they're almost encouraging you don't have to do calf mobility because uh, player number 28 does not do calf mobility. And he's the fastest guy on the team. Well, maybe not the norm, but the standard. Callie's here. Hi. Yeah. Hi, Callie. What an intro. Hello. So I, I just didn't want it to, I don't know. Just based off my experience, coaches see one thing with one athlete, and then it becomes their experience. And then they train or coach that athlete every single way that way. So I want I almost want them to take your approach where you just look at every athlete individually. Yeah, look, um, I for for that athlete, um, if I truly believe that that what they were doing was not ideal, what I would do was I would find a way into his system to make him better and then break mm -hmm. down his beliefs as quick as possible. So the way that I do that is um, most people want to be strong. Um, so I take guys that are way stronger than me and, um, and I just show them how I can push them over, um, how they're weak in, in the positions that they think they want to do. So one of the classics is in posture, you know, you're taught to put your shoulders back and down. And then people have carried this over into their lifting. And um, I'm pretty sure I did this with you, Luke. Um, but, yeah. you know, in a shoulders back and down position, it's really weak for your shoulder. I don't know why people do it. And, um, and as soon as I start doing that, it starts messing with their minds. And then they want to know my way. And I just have to prove every single time. And I always ask my patients to do it, is to test me. Whatever I give you to do has to make you better. It has to improve your performance. Otherwise, it's not going to work. Um, I think I think I wrote a blog post on um, Brandon Roy. He's a shooting guard. He was yep. a shooting guard for the Portland Travel. Uh, was it Portland? Yes. Um, yeah. If you wanna if you wanna cry and pull your eyes out out of frustration, you should watch. You should go to my blog and and type in Brandon Roy and see some of the rehab exercises his trainer. Um, was putting him through, and then um, ask yourself the question, would he still have knee cartilage in if, if he just had somebody different rehabbing him? Uh, yeah, there, there's, there's an example of a genius on the, on the court who was doing things suboptimally and should have been pulled up. 
somebody should have had that under control. It's very disappointing. Yeah, and when uh, that discussion that I had with Ant when we were talking about just retracted depressed shoulder girdle, it triggered a, a post we we put up on the site a while ago about overcooking cues and really how when we go into when into these seminars and we're, we're working with athletes in such a short period of time, it really it changed our context as well. But I mean, we we give cues to overcompensate for athletes to tap into some tension as a kind of a physiological cue to get into good position. So this retraction depression, like there's a way you could overcook it. And that was Ann's term, you know, mm. where people like they rely on tension either through the shoulder girdle or through the retraction of the subscapular system. As like a proprioceptive. Yeah, as a cue. And then all of a sudden, and like you said, he's like, yeah, you probably relied on that a long time ago, but you don't need to rely on it now anymore. Now you're just walking around with your chest stuck out like yeah. an asshole. No, like a totally legit dude. <laughs> the American bro. <laughs> so, uh, no, it was super, and, uh, super, super enlightening where it's just like, oh, yeah, you know, over time, you don't really need to rely on that tension. So I got uh, someone popped in a question here on our Q&A deal for Ant, and we'll, we'll jump on that real quick before we go any further. All right, Danny? Um, oh, Playtech's here. Playtech, what's up? <laughs> what's up, y'all? Sorry I'm tagging in late here. Had some meetings I had to take care of at work. Some PR. Just the, oh, the no. LA Times called and wanted to know about my faux hawk. Envy and hate are... Oh my God, the <laughs> faux hawk is straight infamous now. They're actually, uh, they're actually kissing cousins. <laughs> um, all right. So, uh, does, so here's the question: Does Anthony, does Anne have any tools for self-diagnosis, finding out if pain is coming from another part of the body? That's a pretty loaded question. But, uh, yeah. or is traveling across the world the best solution? <laughs> so, Anne, um, how do you think that? Look, I think. Um, I think if it's in a distal area, if it's if it's in a um, anything from your hips down, or if it's from your shoulder out through your elbow and your your wrist and your hand, I I think you have to play with different things. Always start with a joint above and a joint below, and um, this is this is for somebody to self-diagnose themselves, which of course we don't support. You should go see somebody who's licensed and registered to help you. But um, if you're going to have a look yourself, always start with uh, the joint above and below and just push on something and see if that makes it better. Um, you know, you, you really are the best person to tell if you're in pain or not. The difference between me and you is simply that I've, I'm a lot older and um, got a bit more experience and a bit more knowledge under my belt. Um, but basically, that's what we do. Uh, traveling across the world, look, Australia is a beautiful place, and I won't stop you traveling here, but there is always Skype as well. <laughs> <laughs> we have, uh, and you got a, like a, a tennis court in your backyard and stuff too. We could all just plop down and stay at your spot, right? You can. You can. I've got a rig in the backyard. I've got four bars here. I've got some and weight. I think I'm I'm coming to the Australia sir the the one that's just outside of Perth, so I've uh I've used that as an ultimatum. Uh, that's a long ways away from Ant though. Is it? Yeah, that's like that's that's kind of like I live in New York, and and uh, you you're going to uh, Los Angeles, but it's oh. close. 
Perfect. You'll have to fly past. <laughs> I don't get it. Those seem so close. Stupid Americans. <laughs> Not at all. You just haven't consulted the map yet, that's all. <laughs> all right, so we knocked that one out. Uh, all right, Danny, what was, uh, what was the other question that we had submitted? Well, Sean, he emailed in. I uh, says, hey, Luke. I wanted to get this question during a live show today, but we got stocked with this blizzard here in Buffalo. I was wondering if nine and seven are too young to be following the CrossFit football or power athlete programming. My little ones have been doing CrossFit kids for two years and are so focused. We have equipment in the garage for me to run them through the program. Do you think it's too early? Uh, they have learned the Oli lifts and squats and deads at CrossFit Kids. Thanks. Love the new site. Keep up the good work. We've had similar questions about uh, youth. We've talked about it on previous podcasts, but we got Ant on the line. I mean, maybe he could uh, kind of give his opinion on that as well. Um, okay. I'm going to assume that the kid um, obviously would start on like amateur or something like that if, if his dad was smart. Well, Denny, just remember uh, we had a guy, AJ, at the seminar who had his kid yeah. since nine years old. He was 11. And, uh, you know, he First basically – First time he power cleaned, right? Yeah, he, well, no, that was that was Gabe. So Gabe was 12. And that was the first time he deadlifted and power cleaned this weekend. But uh, uh, John's popping on right now. He's, like, taking off his gloves and uh, turning Get the hat around. He's getting fucking ready to, to go into this one. So, John, did you – he jumped on a little late. So you, nine and seven year old boys, right, Denny? Yep. Yep. Uh, Is it too early to start? You know, the the barbell training. Obviously, saying they have some squat and deadlift yeah, experience. I, I would uh, not add barbell training in. I mean, not to say I wouldn't teach them the moves. I mean, you might do some PVC stuff, but especially or maybe even some light stuff or some of the only stuff. I would definitely want to teach them like the power clean, power uh, power snatch. Full clean, uh, full snatch, and I'd start working on some stuff. But in terms of actual barbell lifting, um, I wouldn't really recommend it until 13 or 14. Those kids are a little young, but that doesn't mean they can't train. A lot of our field work and a lot of our kind of what you see with our metabolic conditioning, a lot of the pushing the sleds, the sandbags, a lot of the, the hard and awkward implements. Isometrics. Um, yeah, are perfect for the kids. Um, if you go back and you look at any of the strongman training, and I don't know if anybody's a geek like me and has gone back and read all the history on like uh, Louis Sewer and just a lot of the old time strongmen from around the turn of the century. Every one of those guys uh, developed their strength as a child, either doing some form of manual labor. Uh, Louis Sewer uh, worked in a bakery and from the time he was a young kid carried these 300 pound uh, sacks of flour up and down a ladder. Um, and he, there was a story about him watching his mom throw uh, a three, two 300-pound sacks on each shoulder and go up and down these um, uh, these ladders. You know, they found Alexiev in a coal mine at age 12 years old working with the men in Siberia. So I think um, realizing that, and we get into this a lot. I'm actually working on an article for Mark Ripto on this, the difference between weight room strong and field strong, that kind of cock strong, that uh, you know, and, and anybody that's played any sports, anybody that's ever played football or wrestled knows exactly what I'm talking about. About, you know, you watch a guy go in the weight room and bench 500 pounds, but he can't go out and, you know, can't play dead on the field. Or that guy that's not super weight room strong, but the guy puts his hands on you and you know, you feel like you're wrestling with your dad. 
So And doesn't a lot of that come from body awareness too? So yes. some of the stuff that we try to promote within younger athletes is like that body awareness and that myelination and that central nervous system yeah. awareness. Well, I, you know, and for me especially, I mean, I developed a certain skill set as a, young, as a younger kid that paid dividends for the rest of my life. I mean, I boxed and did martial arts as a kid, and really, really when I got into boxing, a lot of the handwork, a lot of the speed bag, a lot of the, the jumping rope, and a lot of the hand-eye coordination that I did as a younger kid uh, ended up developing a certain skill set that allowed me to be successful for many years in my, uh, in my previous life as an NFL player. So um, I think... Uh, there is a very real training program that I would do for, uh, you know, younger kids. And I would, um, I mean, just, I'll tell you a little, little history on what I'm doing with, with my girls. Uh, you know, they already, you know, we take them down, they go to gymnastics two days a week. Uh, they swim and, uh, you know, try to get them out and do as many things as they can. So I think offing variety in the sport, just having a kid basically go into the weight room and do some basic barbell training, um, is not nearly as beneficial, but there's a, an interesting article. Uh, it was a research study that did that uh, I can't remember, and I'd have to go search for it. It was um, one of the the uh, uh, training manuals from the Russians, where they did a huge test where they uh, exposed certain kids before puberty to physical activity, physical training, and uh, and then they had another group that they didn't, and then after puberty, they put them all in the same program, and the kids that had been exposed to some form of weight training, some form of strength conditioning, developed strength and musculature or muscle at a greater rate than the kids that didn't. So there's a whole theory they talked about called priming the pump. Um, and for me, especially when I look at like how I would train a seven and a nine-year-old, uh, it would just be hard physical manual labor. I'd make them, you know, sandbags, kettlebells, uh, body weight, gymnastics, um, you know, things like you would see in a basic CrossFit routine. But the thing I wouldn't do is I wouldn't put a clock on them, and I would uh, force them to develop a skill pattern of perfect movement. So a lot of the skill patterns and a lot of the, the you know, the movements that we learn, uh, you know, we develop early in life or a lot, you know, I would take more time to develop those and not really worry about that so much. So I think that there's a, a definite real training program and maybe at some point we could put out some stuff, but I think uh, the barbell aspect across the football might be a little too early for those kids, but in terms of the, the conditioning and a lot that we do with our, you know, kind of uh, across the football Metcons and a lot of the, uh, those type of movements, uh, I would have those kids deep in that stuff four days a week. Well, and it is in the, pro I mean, when you, you look at the purpose of the barbell lifts in the program, it's to drive strength adaptation. Well, you the challenge posture and position. And make, you, know. you could still utilize that and not linear progress it with uh, other implements, I guess is sure. what you're saying. Like, still get your primal movements in your squats, your lunges, yeah. your pushes and pulls, but... You know, we've been uh, going down two days a week to this gymnastics place and sitting in there watching uh, these kids train uh, even what they're doing with our little girls who are two, uh, I'm actually kind of jealous that I didn't get to do gymnastics as a kid. I mean, they have a lot of, uh, you know, 10, 11-year-old boys in there that are doing a lot of different movements. A lot of it's built on, you know, uh, you know, isometric holds, creating stability, and just a lot of... And then power. Yeah, and you, you know what? And just that kind of body awareness, a lot of the tumbling, a lot of the movements. I mean, uh, it just, yeah, I, I look at that and I'm sad that... I didn't have, I didn't go in and do that stuff because if I could have developed a little bit more of that, I might have been more successful. But why specifically not the barbell movements? Just for my own curiosity. Um, I think uh, mainly 
Um, not that I think it would harm them in any way, but I think it mainly comes down to they have the rest of their life to to train, to, to yeah, train. So, as opposed uh, to yeah, play. Exactly. Yeah. So making it fun. Um, another example: when I was a, uh, I didn't play football until I was 14 years old. Uh, at in sixth and seventh and eighth grade, uh, every one of my buddies was on a Pop Warner football team that won like the national championship for Pop Warner. They were mm -hmm. like, they went to Florida and played against some team and I think they like lost. But they like every year they were the best Pop Warner team. By the time those kids got to high school, you know how many of them played in college? Like Zero. a handful. You know how yeah. many quit after their sophomore year of football? Huh. Like, they were just almost over everyone. it. Yeah, they were over it, and it's like you know they had been it been such a competitive deal that all of a sudden they got to a point where they're like I just don't want to do it anymore. Um, whereas a lot of these kids have been training when younger and they've been doing this stuff, and all of a sudden I came in it was fresh to me and I still got to go do it. So, uh, not to say that it would harm them and there'd be any like you know detriment. I'm not a huge believer in that. Oh, you'll stump their growth and you'll overload their growth plates. Um, but I think that there's a better training system for kids. And a diverse uh, training yeah. system, too. Well, yeah, you, you got to remember the, the biggest plus that we're going to see in this training is constantly varied, changing the implements, making things hard and awkward. Uh, lifting weights, while not easy, is very convenient in a lot of ways. You have this uber skinny bar, these circular balance plates that fit on the end and that you can kind of manipulate it and you put it on and it's, you know, tracks within your certain body. All of a sudden, you do those same movements and you start developing um, these same movement patterns with hard and awkward implements, and that's where you develop a lot of this physical strength. So I would put them in sports, and if they wanted to do some form of training, I would make them uh, do just a lot of the things that we do at our gym every day. It reminds me of that girl that you said you dated whose father was a, a sprinter or a hurdler, and then she became a hurdler, a collegiate hurdler. Yeah, you know, her dad held the world record in the 800 meter, and her mom was uh, NCAA champ at 800 meter runner. And he had her doing just like... Yeah, from the time she was little. So uh, she was an All-American 800 meter runner. And so when I, I talked to her and she talked about, you know, uh, to leave the house in the morning when they got up. So when they got up, they knew they had to do 10 pull-ups. They had to uh, jump over the couch like 10 times. And they had like this whole plyometric and uh, uh, workout that they had to do uh, before breakfast, before they could leave the house. And if they didn't do it, they couldn't leave the house. They couldn't eat breakfast. And then on Saturdays, they spent all day Saturday at the gym or um, at, at the track. And they would like run and jump and they would just play all day. And then all of a sudden she never really trains. And then she was like an All-American and her sister was an All-American runner. And they just had never really ever put in many hours. But so many of the movement patterns that they had learned were just well-developed. Jumping over furniture. Yeah. it. Uh, you know, people will put a lot of value in training in this. But at the end of the day, I mean, this is kind of a, an interesting realization. Um, my dog, Rocky. Uh, he had a uh, like a kind of a growth on his paw, so they removed it. And the vet was talking to us yesterday about uh, Rocky. Man, Rocky was a real is a really nice breed of pit bull. I mean, we spent a lot of money and uh, went out and really found a really solid breed that had great great lineage. Whereas Bear, my other dog, did not have as good a lineage, and he had a lot more problems. And he passed away before he'd been. Rocky's actually older than him, and he looks great. So, I mean, the doctor was like, "Oh, really good bloodlines. It's really goes to show he's aged a lot better than your other dog did." And uh, Rocky's still strong, still pretty agile. And so I kind of got to thinking about it a little bit more. And it's like the same is true for people as well as, you know, for dogs and horses and, and you know, every other mammal or animal on this planet that, you know, you start with a certain genetic adaptation and then what you do to express that becomes kind of key factors. So 
I think if, uh, you know, especially with, with Aaron was a good example where, you know, she obviously came from, you know, pretty good lineage and that both her mom and dad were pretty good at it and then just had a little bit of training and a little bit of, uh, um, you know, opportunity and she does really, really well. Whereas, you know, you run into other kids who, you know, I had a, I had a guy one time come to us and um, ask me if I would train his 10-year-old because he wanted to guarantee that he went to the NFL. <laughs> And I remember talking with the guy, and the guy was like, well, what can I do to guarantee my son goes to the NFL? I'm like, well, how tall is your wife? He's like, oh, she's 5'4". I'm like, well, you're 5'7". So unless you have somebody hiding in your lineage that's like 6'5", or a, uh, you know, sub The milkman was like yeah. 7 feet. <laughs> unless the milkman was like 6'5", and like, you know, or the other milkman had like a 10 flat 100 meters, I'm pretty sure it's going to be, uh, I'm not saying it's going to be impossible, it's just going to be a little more difficult. So... You know, you're going to need a certain genetic adaptation for it. But uh, in terms of, you know, training those kids, I think that they have their whole life to lift weights. Not to say when it would not, uh, I don't think it would adversely affect them, but I think there's a better training system to make it more fun for a lot of these kids. And it's just hard work. So, Ant, from your angle on the physio side of things, uh, how do you feel about youth athletes getting involved in this type of stuff? Um from a from a purely technical point of view there's nothing wrong with lifting weights with a barbell like John was saying but um, there's better opportunities to to use their time I think um, the key I think to summarize what John was saying really is that you can uh, you can do a lot more uh, you can more efficiently develop their system by getting them to do different things and uh, keeping it varied and uh, like John was saying, you just broaden that base. But from a technical point of view, I think uh, maturity of the child is really important. If they don't listen, if they don't have that mentality and that attitude of wanting to get that movement perfectly, then um, then I wouldn't do it. I, I watch both of my sons. Uh, one of them will do what I say, and the other one will just try and get through the work. And he doesn't have a clock on him. It's just like do five squats, and he'll just do five ugly squats. Whereas the other one will try and please me, and try do it with a straight back, and he tries to keep his knees out over his ankles, like he's paying attention. And he's the younger one. He's the your favorite. One. He's your favorite, right? <laughs> Not at all. He's, he does have the most genetic potential. Whatever I could throw <laughs> in on, he's he's the one that he's the one that knows uh, at the age of four and five. When he was running and, and, you know, he plays he started playing rugby league at the age of four. Um, That's awesome. And, uh, I would love to oh see him out there running around just running into each other. Oh, but he's got such natural ability. He knows exactly when to cut in and he'll leave people tackling air because he just knows instinctively when to move. And um, he, he's quite natural that way. But my he's son, when he runs with – he's the younger one, the other son – he plays a halfback, so a halfback's like the quarterback in a team. So when he runs with the ball, you can you can almost hear his brain thinking. Um, he's thinking, what's he going to do next? What's he going to do next? Whereas the younger one, when he's got the ball, he's thinking, how am I going to get to that try line? How am I going to get into that end zone? So um, so it's very different. But from a technical point of view, I don't have a problem with doing weights uh, with kids. I I will always question. Unless I know them well, I'll always question whether their coach, be it their parent or whomever, is well qualified enough to to pick up on the shearing. It's it's control of the shear, control of the rotation, 
Um, that's that's the biggest thing, uh, just from a damage point of view. Sure. So the loading the growth plates is not a problem because that's going to stimulate growth. It's whether you load the growth plates and then try and shear them off. That's the problem. Yeah. And then also people like progressing and not realizing they have to be really, really very conscious of the, of the progression. Those of kids are like gumby. Uh, you know, my, my, <laughs> wife, my wife and I had a pretty good conversation about it because um, uh, my wife, Kate, is uh, she's a really gifted athlete and she played uh, on the Olympic development team in high school and was uh, on her way to college scholarship for soccer and has always been a really good athlete. She competed in the games too for our team and um, so we had a kind of interesting com uh, conversation in that she said that her entire life from the time she was little sports were always extremely easy and she was always the best she's like you know I just was always easy I got up there and I could play soccer I could do all these sports uh, everything was always effortless and you know just like you know like asking about our kids and she's like you know uh, it, you know I hope they have that same um, same opportunity or luxury that, yeah, that same luxury and I, I always tell her, I'm like, I, when I was younger, and you can talk to my brother, Ed, he's like, you were a fucking terrible baseball player. He goes, you know, you were decent at basketball, but he's like, uh, and the reason being is I was so tall. Like, I was six foot by the time I was 13. Uh, so I was always so much taller than everybody. I think that it wasn't until that I got older that all of a sudden my kind of nervous system and my coordination caught up, and I was able to actually be, you know, better. Use so, your body and your size. Yeah. So, uh, you know, like, believe me, there were sports when I was younger. I wasn't able to move. I wasn't able to do the same things other kids were. And it wasn't until, like, I got older that all of a sudden everything wired up, whereas she's somebody that's always been really, really wired. And uh, so, But it's like, who's laughing you now? Think, well, you know? yeah, that, so that's why I told her. I was like, well, you know what? I'm like, you were great when you were five years old. Yeah, I in your face. all through my 20s and 30s. Like, what's more beneficial? Do you think, but, uh, so think about that, too. I mean, she's shorter. Right, so she didn't have a significant amount of like uh, she probably maxed out because right, she was the longer gangly kids are the ones that her learning had a curve hard time. was like. Well, I mean, uh, even going out and watching my nephew, I mean, we've been uh, we go out and watch my nephews playing flag football and obviously play soccer. I mean, it's interesting just from a purely athletic standpoint to you know, as like a uh, observer watching these you know seven, eight, nine year old kids play. There are certain kids that are way better than other kids. Yeah. Like there's like a couple kids out there where you're like, dude, the kids are really put together. Athlete. Yeah, he he has it all. I mean, he understands he's aggressive. He plays the way he should. He moves and does all that. And uh, you know, my brother's a great example. My brother Eddie was always extremely gifted as an athlete, especially when he was younger. And all these parents are always like, and my brother coaches a bunch, so he's always like, oh, my kid's gonna be a superstar. My brother's <laughs> always like, let me tell you about my brother John. <laughs> he was not a good baseball player and, uh, you know, wasn't great when he was younger at sports, but as he got older, he matured into everything and everything became much easier as he got older. So I think that there is an opportunity and what I'm trying to get back to is that I think certain kids uh, just naturally get it and I think other kids need to learn to develop the skills and I just wish at a younger age that somebody had taken me aside and been like, hey, we're going to work on these things, whether it's uh, not necessarily barbells, but more athletic training, a lot of what we do, and given me those opportunities from the time I was Accelerated younger. adaptation yeah. at and, a young age. I, I, I think developing a lot of those athletic, you know, I mean, I believe me, I, I really wish when I was younger I had uh, somebody who was a running coach. I wish I had a Raphael to teach me how to run. <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> Raphael would have murdered you. No, no I mean, it's true, because I, I remember... Uh, you know, like, uh, it's, it, 
I didn't learn to run until I got, like, I was always, like, decently fast, but I didn't understand the mechanics, and I was always much faster when I got to high school and got into track and when I got to college and then, you know, sort of going through speed program, and then when I got in the NFL and sort of working with sprint coaches, uh, I think that there's a lot of things that are really holding kids back or really a lot of those mechanical things that we could go out and teach and really work if, if we had the opportunity. So I think some, some kids are naturally just going to be able to pick stuff up just like anything, more natural athletes, and then other athletes are going to have to be more developed. And I think uh, creating an athletic style of training, doing a lot of the kind of the movement prep and a lot of the, the movements that we do, I think will help build that. But I think just like anything, it's a process. And then, you know, much like, uh, you know, just like anything, like you're going to do your best and hope to God it turns out okay, you know? I think we should pick athletes and kids like they do on 300, and we just discard the ones that don't run like a decent 40. And then, you know, then we the have like a. Are, <laughs> the ones that are weak. Give the slow ones yeah. a computer. Yeah. Give the slow ones a computer. I mean, you don't have to throw them in the pit of death, just give them a computer. <laughs> There you go. That's how. So that's how. Isn't that what they do in China? Isn't that what they do in China? I watched, uh, yeah. I watched the new 300 movie. Did you? Yeah. And it's pretty uh, good. It's pretty. I mean, it, it, it's pretty good. It's not as good as the original. Well, because it's no. Yeah. <laughs> it's it. a sequel. It's yeah. a sequel. Yeah, it's it's a sequel. But like, I I always do love. Um, I can't know, wait I, to watch I, that. As a rhetoric major, a lot of what we did was with the classics, and I did a lot of classics reading and you know, remember reading about a lot of the Spartan, a lot of the Agogi, and a lot of that training, and, like, they basically just put these little savages into a, a took them from their parents, threw them into a kid camp, and, like, basically didn't feed them and said, you have to steal and fight for your food. Sleepaway camp. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like, like fun. Yeah, we're going to, yeah. we're basically taking you at age seven, <laughs> and we're going to take you, we're going to throw it in, and basically these kids got put into Hooray! Yeah. You know, we didn't get fed, and you got to steal. Isn't that what they do in China? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what they do in China. Does it work? I, I, don't, know, I don't know if it's working, but. <laughs> so I think so, we answered the question. <laughs> I, I think I, I want to add one more thing to the question, and John said it. It was uh, sprint mechanics. So uh, working with a couple, uh, young baseball player and volleyball player, all they know are baseball and volleyball. And because all they're doing is just playing those sports, their shoulders, their hips are so tight and their running mechanics, their skipping, is the worst you've ever seen. So maybe not a, maybe not a uh, I don't know if you can say that. We've, over the last five years, I've seen some really fucking bad skipping. <laughs> yeah. it's, all right, it's pretty bad. But if there's those athletes or attendees' parents, you know, invested in their skip time like this father should, then maybe it's not as bad. So maybe sprinting mechanics Ooh. instead of barbell stuff for variety for the sport. Well, the other thing, too, and this is a huge factor that I think we're forgetting, is kids learn by watching. So uh, they learn how to walk, they learn how to talk, they learn everything by observing, and they're like small little autistic parrots. And they just watch, and then they parrot. So uh, anybody who, you know, Playtex got like 27 kids by 27 different women, and he's doing a study on it right now. But uh, um, if... If, like, for example, uh, like, I say something and my, and my daughter completely mimics what I have to say. So the same with movement. So if, uh, you know, if you're a crappy mover, there's a good chance that your kid is going to be a crappy mover. If you're a fairly good athlete, there's a reason why a lot of professional athletes have a lot of children that are professional athletes. It's because, the, you know, they're, they're able to look at this movement, they're able to see it, and they're able to mimic it. So I think... Um, it's kind of twofold. Is you know, do you have a certain genetic framework that you're working within, and 
do you have, is there enough observation of enough good movement around you to necessarily facilitate an athletic kid? So, yeah, in, in biology, that's uh, what's called the uh, gene by environment interaction. So if you're if you're the offspring of a of a professional athlete, clearly you've got the genetics. But then if you're exposed to those proper movement patterns through yeah. uh, social learning, um, it's going to come out. And I think there's some studies showing that like kids who are born to parents who have congenital limbs develop yeah. a limp independent of any kind of congenital condition. Yeah. Um, so they you know do. another way. I mean the thing you want to do is. Is uh, I mean, the thing that I do with my kid is I keep my kid away from any kids that move. That like, limp. That that limp. That limp and that move in a sucky fashion. Well, um, they, they did if my study. kid play, if my kid plays with kids that move shitty, then he's not allowed to be friends with them anymore. Oh my god. Well, I I, I completely Damn. like it. I mean, it's it's genius. I uh, that's why we just sit there and just um, I make the kids watch so you think you can dance in the Olympics over and over again on repeat. <laughs> yeah. So they, they can, I mean, that's probably better. But uh, there's also a, another study where they observed children that had been raised by their paternal grandparents, and they watched yeah. and they videotaped the kid's movement pattern. And I remember the one that was most shocking was there was like a, a little girl whose grandfather had a cane, and when they watched, they videotaped and showed her movement. It showed her shuffling her feet and walking like she had a cane. Uh, but there's also a lot of reason that you watch like, younger children who, uh, like, we go down to this gymnastics place and Killy and Jamie are in there and there's one little girl who's actually a little younger than them who like does all the demos and is really good at everything and moves really well. Of course, she's like the fourth child and her brothers and sisters have all been doing gymnastics and she's been there since she was like two days old and this is what they do and they work on all the time. So of course she's more developed than my kids who, you know, basically try to sleep in the dog's cage all day and <laughs> steal her phone out of his mouth. You know, so... Yeah, we're we're right in the middle of potty training, so we've uh, it's been interesting the last couple of days. So your your crate training is that what you just admitted to? <sighs> no, like my little girls decided they didn't want to wear diapers anymore, so they basically okay. were like, you know what, we're not going to wear diapers, and so they basically have revolted against the diaper. But then they don't necessarily understand that <laughs> that you have to go to the bathroom in the toilet. So I'm over there having like a intellectual conversation with a two year old, being like, okay, I understand you don't want to wear your diaper, but when you don't want to wear your diaper, you have to go to the bathroom in the toilet. And in they're the looking at me corner. and they're like, no, dad, dad, no diaper. I'm like, I know that. We've, we, we've established Linda. that you're not going to wear your diaper, but that's cool. I don't want you to wear your diaper. And then they're like, and then the other big one is they want to go to school. But I'm like, you have to wear undies. You can't wear diapers to go to school. And they're well. like, okay, dad, let's go to school. I'm like, oh, man, this is like dealing with people at the CERT or Luke and Callie. <laughs> but I'm just trying to prepare you for parenthood. Linda. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> But but I, I just don't get it. So five reps. Why five? <laughs> Anything else? I think we answered that one. How long has this podcast been going? Like two days? Yeah, we started at six a.m. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Ant is like snoring in the background. Are you still no, awake? He's Ant? pecking. You, you can hear him oh. pecking in the background. He's typing. Hmm. Or is that Playtech reading papers? I, I had my. I don't, I don't sign papers, John, because then I got to read shitty college student writing. <laughs> I, have, I have fucking training to do. You're like I, I have. I Mace Windu. I am working to be the second fittest man at deadlifts and box jumps in the world. <laughs> I mean, you know, we have to have goals. So, I mean, seriously, how much publicity have you pulled out of being the second fittest man in deadlifts and box jumps? By publicity, <laughs> do you mean tail? Yeah, and by publicity, yeah, I just mean like hot chicks throwing themselves at you. <laughs> um, I've done okay. Hey, oh, <laughs> oh, I love it. He's like, you know, 
They're like, oh my god, he's so good. Look, look how long his arms are. He's a natural hand lifter. And this whole time, I thought Playtech was six five. I just realized he had six foot five wingspan. He's four five foot ten. Yeah, five ten. Weighs one hundred seventy five pounds. Whoa, 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 whoa! Ninety seven kilos. Relax. <laughs> Not a girl. Uh, that offends me as a woman. That's way too light. <laughs> good. Uh, anything else? You got anything else you want to bring up? Um, I'm here to. I'm open to questions. I'm. Uh, I didn't have anything to bring up other than um, I really appreciated what John said and um, and uh, you know the very the variability of training. My my kids are uh, 12, 11, and uh, or nearly 12, nearly 11, and and nearly eight. So um, it's been fun watching them grow up. Every now and then, the littlest one, you know, the little boy that that wants to do everything, it is from competing with his brother all the time. His brother's um, uh, basically three years older than him, and um, so poor Jacob feels like that he's suffering all the time. But you know, he 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 weighs 26 kilos, and he wants to deadlift that 32 kettlebell all the time. Um, so I'm watching him like a hawk when he does it, of course. But um, he he just does mimic movement. So so keep them out there, keep them in sports, and keep them um, keep them doing many different things. My kids do so many different things. Um, I wonder where we find the time and the money for it sometimes. <laughs> well, I don't know if um, I'm sure you guys gave Ant a, a nice introduction, but I do want to thank him personally for taking the time out to both talk to us on the podcast and for answering all my questions and then questions on questions on questions. Um, he's uh, one of the smartest guys in terms of physiology and trying to teach people about their own bodies that I've come in contact with. So I hope that you make the trek out to Newport Beach again If I uh, since, since I'm just now realizing that I'll be in the New York of of Australia. Well, the upside down New York. Australia. The upside down New York. Well, what's, what's good is when I task Callie with writing this article, where it came from is um, what we've come to realize is everybody is so, a la Kelly Starrett, become hyper fascinated with this idea of mobility and the. Without context. Saying, yeah, I mean, everybody's just trying to become more mobile and I'm like, that's great, but what is mobility without stability? It's called injury. So yeah. uh, we're actually <laughs> launching our new site. It's called Stability Wad. And I'll find out. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to start stability wad where I'm going to teach people just to fucking stabilize. I think we need but, to hire Ant, and he'll be stability. Yeah, well, well I, I actually have another idea for Ant. You know, he's, the, he's the physio detective. I say we start like bikini inspectors. But no, on a separate note, I had a great conversation with Rob Wolf about this, and that uh, you know, in sports, whether it be football or you know, weightlifting or a lot of these different movements. We teach people to, you know, like tighten down and to almost like get, you know, get very stable and like kind of like key in and like you create this internal pressure uh, and this stability. And what's interesting, uh, every sport is like that except CrossFit, where you're actually asking somebody to stay relaxed under load. Um, because, you know, like for me, for example, the first time I came out and did a CrossFit workout, I remember just actually imploding. Because I was so used to trying to, like, to create so much stability, yeah. and so much internal pressure. Like I, you know, like I take the same approach to CrossFit that I took when I was trying to, you know, bench 500 pounds or yeah. 700. So to like thrust your 95 pounds, you wear yourself out. And I fucking imploded. 
and watching uh, a lot of these guys, I mean, I was watching some of the videos of the 14.4 and Rich Froning, what's amazing is that these guys are able to stay so relaxed during these movements. I mean, usually a toe-to-bar movement is like a hip flexor and a psoas movement in gymnastics, but I'm watching these guys, and it's like they're using their lats uh, as almost like their legs are almost like um, a counterbalance, and they're just mm-hmm. using their legs to swing, and... I believe that to truly be good at CrossFit, you have to really create a certain level of uh, comfort and just stay really loose and like lax, lax during all of these movements. Efficient. And, uh, I, and and I, I think that's what allows these guys to be able to do this much. And the problem is, is that it's really counterintuitive to just about everything else we teach. I mean, think about a guy, you know, in rugby running is as he's supposed to play it, and he goes to take that hit if he's lax. I mean, you know, it becomes more and more difficult. So it's just kind of a, an interesting, um, you know, to be able to string this many reps and be able to do this much volume and stay kind of uh, at this at the pace that a lot of these guys are holding. You have to stay relaxed. So, uh, and then how do you effectively stay stable? How do you stay strong in a relaxed state? I don't know. That's uh, that's exactly what it's about, though. It's it's about having, um, like, if you read on on the blog that Kelly wrote, stability is meeting the demands of the task. It's not having maximal stability. It's having just enough stability to be safe and perform most efficiently. Sure. So I I don't like the word lax because lax means that you let things go. In my world, anyway, um, I I prefer to say that they're perfectly controlled. Most of the time, you know, yeah. fatigue. That sounds time. right. But it, I mean, that's a that's a, a talent and that's a learned skill yeah. as much as it is to be able to like, you know, squeeze down and to get right to be able to, uh, you know, perform a full lift, perform a big squat, perform any of our big movements, or you know, like a big thing too. When I played football, you know, as soon as the ball was snapped, you had to get into position. And there was, uh, you know, we always talked about a lot of the movement we talk about when we teach the dead bug about drawing in and basically sucking our belly button and stabilizing. That movement really comes from uh, being able to control and always stay in this kind of um, ready, stable position and be able to kind of move and and be able to move because uh, where I saw guys get hurt is when they were relaxed or they weren't ready for something, and then all of a sudden somebody would hit them from the side, and they'd hurt their back, they'd rush their desk, they'd do different things, and it always happened when somebody wasn't prepared. At the end of the play. Yeah. Uh, so we did a lot of training like we did when we did we did boxing, where, uh, you know, you know, like in boxing, like they would, like, you know, hit you with a slam ball, hit you with a med ball, and you always had to be able to constantly be moving, but had to be in a position to always take those blows. So there's a certain level of stability that you have to do, but you have to maintain and be relaxed and be able to do it. That's so. why John makes us dodge wrenches regularly. Well, if you can dodge a wrench, you can dodge a ball. <laughs> it's a good thing he throws like a girl. Girly <laughs> <laughs> man. Uh, so we're on like our just over an hour. Should we so nap and then come back? or? Tex, did you want to talk about Wade's Army? Yeah. Yeah, we're um, Harry, our guy overseas in, in the U.K., he he put it together an amazing video, so we're gonna we're gonna get that out this week, and then really start kind of uh, building that awareness. And I was thinking about our campaigns from the last couple of years, and our goal was awareness, awareness, get the neuroblastoma name out there. And now that the name is out there, I think we should kind of define it in the aspect of what is this disease. Everyone now is familiar with neuroblastoma, the word, but nobody knows what it really is. 
so I've been working closely with Heather DeBruin, uh, Wade's mother, and Scott, her, her husband, his father. And so we've just been talking a lot about neuroblastoma and how we can effectively kind of uh, share their story, their pain, their suffrage, and then the, the ordeal that families all across the U.S. are going through right now. Uh, so she's got a lot of contacts in the neuroblastoma world, families, um, people going through this. So we're going to try to do our best to really uh, show people this disease for all, all that it is, and then families kind of highlight them, see what they're going through, and see if we can drum up some more support for research and helping families go through this as much as we can. So that's starting this week. All right, so that's how people are going to be able to get involved, right? We'll have all that. Uh, probably get some more details early next week up on Power Athlete and and out through, uh, through the network, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Awesome, dude. What else? What other shameless plugs do we have? New shorts. New shorts are out. They're going to be on the site tomorrow. I'm wearing them now. Jorts. Everyone's wearing them. Uh, but, yeah, they're legit, doesn't, aren't they? Yeah, they're so, Callie's not impressed because she thinks we look homeless in them. They're cute, but they're just they're just sweatpants that are cut off. Yeah, that's, but that's the that's brilliant. That's like every, everyone, you know, because I used to have to just buy sweats and cut them into shorts. I don't have time for that anymore. <laughs> I don't, Back or may yourself a pair of sweat shorts. <laughs> I ain't got no time to jibba jabba. I'm classy. I buy my sweat shorts pre-cut. That's At fine. Costco. I'm not, certainly no fashionista, so I won't uh, I won't pass judgment. Uh, I don't know. Look at this little flannel I got on right now. Yeah, what are you rocking? It's, it's pretty cute. Would you steal that from some guy that you had to slither away from last night? Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa low She's blow, like, I dropped this off of the, uh, the He gave it to me. He said I could have it. <laughs> it was a it. gift. This was the spoils of battle. <laughs> it was a gift. <laughs> It was a gift, Todd. Uh, and then, and <laughs> are you? Uh, I know we talked briefly. Aunt, you're planning on trying to get out here um, near in July, right? That's right. Just uh, for the CrossFit Games, I'll have never uh, heard of it. <laughs> never heard of it. <laughs> um, yeah, just working with some athletes and um, hopefully um, uh, get out there. But I'd like to, uh, you know, maybe have some talks. Where people sure. can can come along to and um, hang well, out with you guys, be, if you'll have me. Well, what would be good is uh, Luke actually broke his coxin or his uh, coxus, and so he's going to need you to straighten it for him. <laughs> so I know you have a technique for that. Yeah, it's an internal manipulation, which uh, <laughs> I refer to uh, other people to do. <laughs> well, I, I know Luke's excited. He keeps talking about you manipulating his. Uh, Toxics? Yeah, it's toxic. Because uh, he did so well on you last time. Yeah, well, I... I, I <laughs> you know, well, I mean, you know, the problem was I, I had a slight bend of mine. I just don't know why it took, took him two or three hours to fix it. All righty. You know, cool <laughs> no, and, and I guess, uh, do, you, do you have any plugs? I mean, you got are you doing any Better talks site? down under? Other than um, yeah, site? look, I'm, uh, I'm doing a powerlifting and weightlifting seminar in, uh, not this weekend, but next weekend. And um, I've got some seminars that are that are coming up uh, around the country. Um, so, you know, my PT education is where you find out all the links from the seminars, and hopefully I'll have some uh, U.S. variety as well, so yeah. so California and um, hopefully New York and maybe Boston as well. And we'll certainly have you on again. Sure. Thank you. It's It's been great to be here. You guys are um, hilarious. Sorry about <laughs> the end bit. It got really... 
informal there and very inappropriate. Oh, wow. And now and, we have the and, and, yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. I just want to say, as a representative of Power Athlete, I do not condone the behaviors or the language that has been used in the past five minutes. <laughs> by by Callie. I'm a lady. I'm a lady. Yeah, I'm a by Callie. Right. All right, let's wrap I, I, it. I did spend a week there, remember, so I do remember what you're like. <laughs> In one word, describe Callie. How dare Bitch you? Tall. Tall. <laughs> Large feet. Dairy. Dairy. Uh, <laughs> a lady. All right, boys, let's, let's wrap it up. What? Uh, we'll get going next week and have uh, – do we have anything we can – Sneak anyone on next week? Yeah, sure. It's yeah, the 50th episode. 50th oh. episode, the Half Century Club. We should, well, we'll, uh, we'll behind the scenes figure out a good uh, guest. All right. Yeah. Huh? Wrap it up. All right, guys, thanks. Bye. Bye. Thanks a lot. Hey, thanks for joining us today, Ant. You're awesome. Yeah, thanks. yeah thank you, Ant. Thank you for having me. If you have any questions at all, please feel free to go to the blog, physiodetective.com, and you can ask me questions there. And Happy to be here. Thank you. Awesome. All right, take care, guys. All right, guys. Talk to you next week.